You're listening to the John Stapleton Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, I have an exciting interview lined up today with my friend Adam. Uh, why don't you tell them who you are and you know what you're studying in school? Of course. And just, yeah. Awesome. Well, hi, I'm Adam. Um, I'm a college student. I go to college in Colorado at Colorado Christian University. I'm a sophomore going into my second semester, sophomore year, and I'm a uh, biblical studies major, and I'm a theology minor and a biblical archaeology minor. I get to study so much of the Bible, and I love it. Um, and yeah, I get to study philosophy and history alongside that in all my other classes. Um, so yeah, I'm a complete Bible nerd, just like John. Um, yeah, so yeah, that's a little bit about me. Um, yeah, I'm excited to be here. Awesome, awesome. Well, hey, let's dive in. Uh, there's uh, there's no shortage of things to talk about and discuss. Mm-hmm. Um, today we're going to be talking about the the historicity of the Bible. You know, one of the rebuttals I get, um, I, I feel like as a content creator, I'm I'm on the front lines of um, just the public opinion. Yeah, and um, and so like I'll I'll say something like Jesus is God or the Bible is authoritative or you should read the Bible. It's just something. Um, just, just that, like you should read the Bible and, um, and often the, the rebuttal is, well, why should I read a fiction book? (laughs) Yeah. And, 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 uh, you know, evidence, these eyewitnesses, these, these so-called eyewitnesses that you talk about, like, how do you know that they were real? I mean, like none of us were there during that time when people were living. So yeah, that's, that's kind of what, that's kind of what I want to address today yeah so let me let me uh just start off with a question and then we'll see where it takes us of course oh and by the way uh, before we get into it we've had some serious <laughs> yes <laughs> mike uh, I, just like tech technological difficulties uh before we got started just yeah like, what felt like three days yeah like i was trying to set up like my three cameras and uh <laughs> and two were working and one wasn't and uh yeah but hey we're here now and and jesus is good he is good all right, All so let's uh, let's do this. Uh, question number one: What's the most impressive discovery you've learned about? Let's yeah, start lighthearted. Yeah, so I've been studying archaeology for um, about three years now, and kind of started studying it when I first became a Christian. And um, yeah, I was just sucked into it. I before I was a Christian, I always loved history, and then when I became a Christian, I was like, let me combine these two, and I found biblical archaeology. So I've been studying that, been following that for um, several years now. And I think one of the coolest uh, discoveries that I've come across, and um, there's an archaeologist that I follow, biblical archaeologist that I follow, uh, Joel Kramer on YouTube. Maybe you've you've seen any videos by him, but he has this he has this six minute video of perhaps one of the coolest archaeological discoveries, and maybe most pertinent for um, typical chronology. Um, he has uh, this video on an inscription of the name Yahweh, the Israelite God Yahweh. Um, so he starts off the video by um, explaining like the dating and explaining that, okay, do we actually have an inscription of the Israelite God, Yahweh? Um, so yeah, he there's this temple in Egypt. Um, modern day, it's in like Northern Sudan. It's like, like a couple miles north of the third cataract in the Nile. Um, and it's at this site, this ancient site called Soleb. Again, it's in modern Sudan, but um, in antiquity, it was in the modern kingdom or not the modern kingdom, the ancient kingdom of, of Egypt. 
the empire. Um, so it was this this temple that was built by Amenhotep the Third. Um, he said, um, dedicated to the god Amun Ra. And yeah, it was just this temple. It was you know ornately designed with hieroglyphics and and other things engraved on the wall. And um, this temple had like dozens of pillars, more than dozens of pillars. And on a certain pillar, well, the pillars themselves have like Amenhotep's enemies, Amenhotep III's enemies that he's conquered or enemies that he's defeated or foreign enemies um, in, in foreign lands. And there's one little like pillar in the corner of the temple that has, it's like compared to the other pillars there, like obviously there's some that are completely missing and eroded away from history. Yeah. There's other ones that are pretty tall. Um, but there's this this little one in the corner, which I thought was really neat. Like it's just this little surviving um, uh, inscription. It has engraved on it um, after obviously after we were able to decipher hieroglyphics, we were able to um, decipher what this little emblem had. It's like an emblem, and then behind it there's like a person. So it's like this people group, I've conquered them, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so the inscription has it. They translated the first. There's like six or seven hieroglyphic characters. Like picture, like like pictographs, and the first one is land, and then the next three that follow it are nomads, and then the last four sign out the word Yahweh. So like, there's each character is devoted to like a sound. Like, there's one that's devo- devoted to the Y sound, and then there's another one devoted to the Ah, mm-hmm. another one devoted to the W, another one, and then, and then the final one devoted to the A. So scholars have um, deciphered this, or like linguistics. Um, have deciphered this into saying land of the nomads of Yahweh. Um, Yeah, it was just incredible when you think about how Joel Kramer dates it. Um, And again, I want to do more research on the Egyptian dynastic history and like the dates that we have, you know, how it collaborates with the the biblical account too. Um, But he dates this and along, um, and also a Canadian archaeologist that did a dig there in the 1950s or wrote a report on it in the 1950s. Um, that is stated around the 15th century BC. So the 15th century BC is like 1500 to 1401 BC. And this is the general period of the Exodus, the general period of the conquest of Canaan. Um, 1446 is the con- is the uh, the Exodus out of Egypt led by Moses. 1406 is the approximate date of the, um, the conquest in the land of Canaan. Um, so what better way to describe this people group uh, other than the, la- the, the nomads of Yahweh. So yeah, I want to do more research on it, but that's something that I've come across and I'm like, wow, like the name Yahweh even just sounded out this tetragrammaton like etched into stone on this pillar in Egypt, not written by an Israelite, written by an Egyptian Pharaoh. Why do you think that is? Because, you know, they didn't like Yahweh wasn't part of their pantheon. Yeah. I think, well, again, the temple itself was, adorned obviously it was for Amun Ra but it was it was adorned with the the uh, enemies the nations that Amenhotep the third has defeated like he's kind of like bragging about like how better he is over these people and again Egyptian history they never recorded their losses they they try to make everything turn into like like how like, like how, revisionist history we've always won yeah like like nothing has changed like the pharaoh obviously to the people was God incarnate on earth so God can't lose. So they would, in a sense, brag about their their victories, even if there wasn't, or if there was a defeat or something. So Yeah. So, okay. 
so th- this kind of this is not in my notes, but I, I was just thinking about like the story in the Bible about God rescuing the Israelites. They cross the sea. Yeah. Pharaoh and his army follows them, but the the waters enclose over him and his army. Mm-hmm. Is there any record of that in Egyptian history? Because mm-hmm. um, like. I don't it has think to be an accounting for what happened to Pharaoh. And yeah, I all those that to my knowledge, I haven't come across anything. Mm-hmm. I haven't researched that in in um, detail. But um, again, they wouldn't like record their defeats. They would only record their record their victories. There's probably lots of gaps in their history. Yeah, yeah, and that's you know because they're an empire, they they operate on a factor of fear, just like the Assyrians or, or the Babylonians. Gotcha. So, yeah. That's interesting. That's interesting. And then, like, I'm just thinking, like, on the, the global stage of, like, history and the documents uh, that, that are out there, um, like, what documents have more integrity, mm-hmm. not just in how they were preserved, but in what they talk about. And, yeah. Um, like, the Bible, one of the things that's impressive about it is it keeps recording everyone's failures. Yeah. And uh, it's just, like, when you compare it to, like, other documents from antiquity... It, it, there is that revisionist history of we all we've always all uh, we've always only won, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's an interesting thing when you come across the biblical record and you see, especially in the line of the Messiah, the genealogical record in Matthew. There's what two or three prostitutes in the line of the Messiah. Like a modern Jew or a Jew in the time, a first century Jew would have been reading that and been like, "This can't be the Messiah," you know, like. So yeah, there's that idea of like the Bible's more vulnerable with the brokenness of humanity. And it kind of it kind of ties back to Egypt in a way, Genesis 50, yeah. like what the enemy meant for bad to cover up all the bad God meant for good. That's so, awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. Um what do you think the difference between proof and evidence is? Cuz this yeah. is a big one. Like Yeah. Like let me let me let me set it up. Um I, I like to listen to a lot of apologetics. I, I almost kind of feel like I'm becoming one myself. I just mm-hmm. uh, just find myself defending the, the faith all the time. Um, and there's this one guy um, that that um, uh, I think is uh, Frank Turek. Love Frank Turek. Frank Turek is a, is, is incredible. Amazing. But you know, like <laughs> um, it was him and there was another guy. Uh, but you know, they they like to go to college campuses because they you know mm-hmm. like the best place to do this and uh like there are lots of college kids that say well give me proof give me Mm -hmm. proof that jesus is who he said that he is yeah and the you know the 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 rebuttal was was pretty brilliant it's like i can't give you proof of i can't give you proof he took his body with him Mm -hmm. i can give you evidence right like there's a certain line of argumentation that yeah attest to what the truth is yeah i can't give you the hard artifact from history yeah all the time Mm -hmm. like what what would you say yeah i think in order to kind of delineate what the different the difference between proof and evidence is first you have to figure out what the definition of proof is then you have to figure out the definition of what evidence is then from there you have to delineate what is the relationship between these two um and now i've from my research i think the like the top three dictionaries um, are pretty you know they they render both definitions pretty commonly on either side um, in the sense of like what one would say for evidence um, the other one would say for evidence around the same exact thing but obviously there is 
we have this idea in our minds, and I'm guilty of it too, that we've kind of interwoven these these two words together, like verbally interwoven them in our mind, yeah. that kind of treating them synonymously. But I, I, after doing more research, I think there's this this distinction. It's a very small distinction. And now, granted, the relationship between them that we that we, that we put to them is is well granted because they're really similar words, and we use them in, in like interchangeably. But um. Yeah, so I have this definition by Merriam-Webster, which I think is really, um, really uh, uh, helpful for understanding the relationship between these. Um, so the definition of proof that Merriam-Webster gives, um, it's, it's evidence that, that compels acceptance by the mind of a truth or a fact. And then for the definition of evidence, um, Merriam-Webster dictionary says that something that furnishes proof. So... The way that I've come to understand this is that there's like kind of like this hierarchy at play, this this hierarchy at play, where um, evidence flows into proof and proof flows from evidence. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's um, almost like the. Let me make sure I don't mix up these words. Um, it's almost like the truth is in is is enclosed envelope contained in the evidence. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like. Again, but you can't start with the truth. Yeah, it's kind of like obviously there's this like almost we've kind of created this symbiotic relationship where they're kind of dependent on one another. You got to build a case for it. Yeah, and I think the good way to understand this is like proof is the verdict and evidence is the clue. Yes. You know. Yes. So I think like the evidence behind Jesus's resurrection is proof that he resurrected, or the evidence that this city was conquered by Joshua is proof that Joshua conquered it. So, like, speaking of the resurrection, like, what would you point to as evidence? Just like, you know, if you're reading, if you're familiar with, like, you know, um, the case for Easter or by mm-hmm. Lee Strobel, or just, mm-hmm. like, reg- normal resurrection apologetics, like, what are some uh, things that people often bring up? I think one of the most compelling evidences to point to the proof that Jesus resurrected is the testimony of the, of the apostles. Um is that you wouldn't invent or 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 create this fictional story and go to your death believing a false story. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, I think it was Frank Turek that said um, liars often abandon their lies when the price of the lie outweighs the benefit of the lie. Yeah, that's good. That, like that's a great way to... from the lie, wh- when, when the price is more than their, what they would gain, they often just leave it alone. Yeah, and I think so. Yeah, the 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 evidence of the apostles, you know, zealous witness, this passionate witness, where they're, um, I mean, they got the, their their social status in in society got changed. They 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 got killed for what they believed in. Yeah, um, they got so kicked. People can't say that they were in it for money and power. No, they 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 believe something so radical that it would be. 12 men and then more than that after all being lunatics and all being sucked into this psychological phenomena that is Jesus yeah. when in reality that's not what the evidence evidence says and yeah so and i mean i mean you talk about that like they're alluding to their character like it's amazing how they were all cowardly mm-hmm. and now they're not i think now they're willing to be like revolutionaries that would die for the cause. I mean, here's the thing. A lot of people think that the the testimony of scripture 
and it relaying the narrative of what is going on, you know, post post resurrection is that everyone was like, man, it's like all sunshine and rainbows. Like it's all flowing in this one magical thing. But no, when in Matthew 28, when Jesus is talking to his disciples and there's other people there, not just his disciples, um, he's like, right? yeah, so, some number, I don't know if it's 500. I think 500. Well, he was like appearing to different groups of people at different times. And at one time it was like 500 people. Yeah. Okay. I know that. But I don't know if it's at Matthew 28. I will have to look at it later. Oh, yeah. But anyways, not Matthew 28. Yeah. yeah. But like, so he's, again, so he's appearing to people after he's resurrected. But in Matthew 28, that Matthew, presumably the author, um, adds this little snippet when it says that he's telling these people things. They're seeing him resurrected. They're seeing him in a physical form again after just hanging from a cross and dying brutally at the, hand of the, at the hands of the Romans. And it's the, Matthew writes that, some believed, but some doubted. Yeah. Like you wouldn't put that in there. And again, even Frank Turek, like, also highlights that, like, in the Gospels, um, the Gospel writers include things that you wouldn't—they're embarrassing details. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, like, the idea of uh, Jesus calling Peter Satan—he makes a really funny bit out of this, where he's like, "Okay." Uh, the disciples are together and they're coming up with what kind of story they want to invent next. <laughs> and, um, you know, Matthew's writing and he's like, Peter, I'm going to have Jesus call you Satan. <laughs> and he goes, no, have him call you Satan. <laughs> it's, it's really, it's really funny. It's their embarrassing details. They give well, yeah, I mean, collaborating and, evidence. Well, here's one I've, I've ran into. Um, so one of the things I'm trying to do this year is, um, you know, read the Quran and figure out what that's about. And, and just get more acclimated with Islamic teaching. Mm-hmm. It's like by 2030, it, it, it will be the biggest re- religion in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the embarrassing things is like when Jesus says, I'm coming back, but I can't tell you when. Only the Father knows. And then he gets into that whole discussion about the Trinity uh, where, you know, Jesus is God, but he doesn't know everything. Mm-hmm. Right. And only the father knows. Only God knows. Wait, I thought you were God and I thought you knew everything. I am God. Okay. When you're coming back, only the father knows. Like, it's just like, yeah. Why'd you have to put that one in there? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that, that is tricky. It's muddy. Theology, biblical studies is, is a difficult. Yeah. Enterprise. I mean, it, it's, it's a little bit of a, it feels like an excuse to say it. It's really not, but like, for real. If we could explain everything about God, then someone made him up. Yeah. It, I mean, that's the whole idea behind um, mir- the miraculous. You know, if if something, if if miracles were normal, if the miraculous stories that we read in scripture were normal, then they wouldn't be miracles because they're normal. Right. That's the whole idea Tuesday. that they're not, they're, 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 if if they're normal, then they're part of nature. If they're not, then they're supernature. There's something supernatural. There's something miraculous. Right. And that there there has to be that that other level. Of, Absolutely. I mean, um, like, I I think it's um, this is a little bit of a rabbit hole. I just want to say for a moment, like, I I see it whenever we try to like diagnose uh, people in our society. So like, you know, let's just say like there's a mass shooting that happens, right? Mm-hmm. And then. People wonder, well, they they have mental illness. That's that's why. Mm-hmm. Where they were bullied, that's why. And it's just like all those reasons fall short because technically anxiety is a mental illness. Everyone has that. Mm-hmm. And everyone's been bullied. It's called childhood. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and it's just like whatever you, whatever clinical thing that they want to like ascribe to the person, it's like, but there's also more. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, for those of us that dare look at the supernatural world of the Bible, we'll, we'll venture to places like demonic possession, demonic oppression, demonic activity. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, in, like, like just like the thing that's it amazes me every single time, like how demonic principalities could be presiding over a country. For example, mm-hmm. like I'm thinking of Deuteronomy 32, where God said, "The boundaries of the lands I allotted according to the sons of God." Mm-hmm. And the sons of God there is is uh, in reference to the angels. The angels have many different names throughout the uh, the Bible, especially the Old Testament, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, they're often called the sons of God. And so what he's saying is, oh yeah, Russia, there's there's a there's some angels that preside over that, and it explains why a country can be closed, the country can, by mm-hmm. and large, have an attitude that's um, anti God, anti Jesus, against the Bible, against Christianity, uh, more aggressively than other places. Yeah. Um, why is that, and why is it consistent over time? Because you know, people places change because people change, but if the people don't change from generation to generation within a family line then it's probably more than clinical. Mm -hmm. I think what's a really cool thought exercise is thinking how, let's say the apostle Paul or the apostle, or not the apostle, yeah, the apostle Paul, the apostle Peter um, were alive today. How would they diagnose the spiritual state of people or even just their um, psychological state? Like, how, what would they label as um, spiritual that we just brush off as physical and normal, you know? Yeah. And yeah, so that, I think that gives us a another lens to relook at things. Absolutely. I mean, and I think he would point to pretty much anything in our culture. Like, mm-hmm. um, like I, heard, I heard one preacher say back in 2009 uh, when Twilight came out that like if you took if you planted someone from a you know another country in America and you put like a Twilight T-shirt on them, um, yeah, they would look at us and say, "You guys are demonic." Mm-hmm. As we can look at witch doctors in Africa and say, "We could say you guys are demonic," right? Yeah. And um, and so I got, I'm thinking back to Paul in Acts 17. He's in Athens. He, he's provoked because he's just looking around and he sees spirituality everywhere. And uh, these people are so superstitious. King James word. So superstitious, uh, religious, and other translations that they have an altar to an unknown god. Like just in case we forgot him or her. Yeah. Uh, here's a here's a monument. <laughs> we didn't forget about you. We just didn't know your name. You know, we were thinking about you though. Yeah. Um. And and, and Paul's like, yeah, you did leave him out. Let me tell you who he is. Ooh. Man, Paul knows how to speak. <laughs> yeah, he's brilliant. I I love Paul because like, um, you know, the Old Testament can be pretty intimidating but we we got a guy that like he knows the law he's been studying it for years um i think i think the book of galatians and in, uh, in the book of galatians he says that he spent he went to arabia and spent 14 years mm-hmm. yeah wrestling with jesus in the old testament yeah and now he's writing these letters to us and he's he's reaching out to the pagan world in a way that peter and james and john couldn't 